Hello to all of you listening to my voice. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those that have never heard any of my messages, I just want to briefly let you understand how I will be sharing this message. I will seek to share this message by speaking not my own words, but the words that are by God's Spirit. I emphasize I will seek to do that because I am not someone that is perfected to speak completely every word from God. But it is very clear from the word of God in 2 Peter chapter 4 where we read, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So we are to seek to speak as the oracles of God. In other words, to allow the Spirit of God to rise out of our inner being so that we are carried beyond ourselves to speak out of the Spirit of God. Those words, as Christ said, that are spirit and life. I will seek to allow and facilitate that. And one of the things that I do is I cast lots before God on what chapter God would want to speak from out of all the chapters in the Word of God so that there is an equal chance on it being any chapter out of the Bible. And then I meditate on that chapter for a half an hour and make some brief notes, and immediately after, I speak in that chapter. And that is what I am going to do right now as I have just finished doing my meditation. I will also point out I can't always speak every day of the week, and this week I'm only speaking today on Saturday. And so I will be pointing out the other chapters that I received because when one does this and they don't do it as a game and they're living a holy life, God's Spirit does work and there is definitely very strong evidence that this is the case because the various chapters I received this week all have a very clear message and a very clear theme and have significant dovetailing of what would be a very clear message. Now you know what I'm about to share. I will first read the chapter I received today. I could have read one of the other chapters that I received this week. But I believe that the chapter I received today is a good chapter to read as a theme chapter. And so my prayer now is before God that he will guide me into all that is his desire to speak, into all truth, and that you who may have never heard a message before, but in God's foreknowledge has come across this message would have your life 
transformed by the creative work of the Spirit of God as he speaks to your life. This message is to those around the world that happen to come across it. It is also to the corporate body of Christ around the world for this particular time that we are living in. To speak as the oracles of God means to be conscious of being in the presence of God and be conscious of being in a state of worship and receptivity to God. And so I will be seeking to have my ears open to what the Spirit of God would be saying. And I have to say that the passages that I'm about to share from are not easy to share from. It's very difficult to know how to communicate some of these things. But I trust again in the Spirit of God to carry us beyond ourselves with enablement in utterance. So the chapter that I received today was in Exodus, Exodus chapter 32. So I will proceed to read Exodus chapter 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. And all the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them unto Aaron. And he received them at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down. For thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. And they have made them a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed thereunto, and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God, and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people which thou brought 
forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out, to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self, and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand. The tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other they were written. And the tables were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, It is not the voice of them that shout for mastery. Neither is the voice of them that cry for being overcome. But the noise of them that sing do I hear. And it came to pass, as soon as he came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot. And he cast the tables out of his hands and brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire and ground it to powder and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink of it. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee, that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people, that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me, and then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin. 
And now I will go up onto the Lord peradventure. I will make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin and have not blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf, which Aaron made. Excuse me as I take a brief drink of water after a long read. And so, Father God, I ask now by your spirit that you would speak what you would say to your people and to every individual that is hearing this message, that it would be driven home, that your word would have free course and be glorified, that I would be hidden in my ways and your ways would come forth. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Okay. Um, The first thing I would like to share with you is the overarching theme of this last week from the various passages that I received that tie in with what is being shared here. In fact, even in my last, second from last message, possibly last message, I think it's second from last one, I talked about how the children of Israel later on also fell into apostasy as a nation and were divided as a nation into the northern part, which was the tribes of Israel, and the southern part, which was Judah, mainly Judah, and I believe the other one was uh, Simeon, if I remember right. So you had a division that took place, and in the northern part of Israel, there was a great apostasy which resulted in them setting up, of all things, golden calves. Now, I received even these passages earlier this week, and so I will begin to share with you the various passages that I received this week in that regards. Beginning, let's say, around, I would say, Monday of December the 22nd. I received Second Chronicles 13 twice this week. So God was really wanting to say something from this particular passage. And because that's the case, I briefly want to turn to it and bring to my mind also what is in that chapter of 
Second Chronicles chapter 13. To just emphasize some of the points, Second Chronicles chapter 13. Turning there. And in Second Chronicles chapter 13, we have the reign, this is the 18th year of the reign of King Jeroboam. But it's talking about Abijah, who's reigning over the southern part of Israel, Judah. He reigns three years in Jerusalem, and I won't go into all the details of this chapter. But there's a battle about to take place between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Israel, which is mainly Judah. Abijah is king. And he stands on the mount of God before this battle ensues. Well, I shouldn't say the mount of God, but it is upon Mount Zimmerim, which is in Mount Ephraim. And he says this, Hear me, thou Jeroboam, which is addressing northern Israel and apostasy, and all Israel, ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, is risen up and hath rebelled against his Lord. And there are gathered unto him vain men, the children of Belial, which means basically the children of the devil, and have strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, which is speaking of the southern kingdom of Israel. Now, when Rehoboam was young and tender-hearted, he could not withstand them. And now ye think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the hand of the sons of David. And ye be a great multitude, and there are with you golden calves, which Jeroboam made you for gods. Have ye not cast out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron? And the Levites, and have made you priests after the manner of the nations of other lands, so that whoever cometh to consecrate himself with a young bullock and seven rams, the same may be a priest of them that are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we've not forsaken him. And the priests which minister unto the Lord are the sons of Aaron, and the Levites wait upon their business. And they burn unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices. And he goes on to describe this. And then he says this to them, But you have forsaken him. And behold, God himself is with us for our captain. And his priests with sounding trumpets to cry alarm against you. O children of Israel, fight ye not against the Lord God of your fathers, for ye shall not prosper. But Jeroboam caused an ambushment to come about behind them, so that they were before Judah, and the ambushment, ambushment was behind them. And when Judah looked back, behold, the battle was before and behind, and they cried unto the Lord, and the priests sounded with trumpets, and the men of Judah gave a shout. And as the men of Judah shouted, it came to pass that God smote Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. 
And the children of Israel fled before Judah, and God delivered them into their hand. Abijah and his people slew them with a great slaughter, so there fell down slain of Israel 500,000 chosen men. And so I don't need to read more about the conquering of an apostate northern nation. But God is wanting to say something to you as an individual and to his people today about overcoming compromise and apostasy in your life personally and in the body of Christ and in those nations in which we reside. And this is the theme that is coming out this week. God in his zeal is zealous for his people to come forth out of the deception of their own ways and become his bride. But there must be a process of unraveling that takes place of our own ways with their consequences of independence from God. I want to point out here that in the chapter we read of Exodus 32, where Israel drifts away so quickly into their own ways and makes these golden calves, that the Lord makes this statement that they have corrupted themselves. So I want to explain briefly about corruption. And I want to share it, first of all, from a scientific perspective. There are two laws in science. There's the first and the second law of thermodynamics. The first law is not the one I want to emphasize, but it is basically a law that says this, that matter cannot really be destroyed be destroyed. It just changes into different forms, whether it's gases or what. And the implication is that therefore something had to always exist. But the second law of thermodynamics says that anything left on its own will always go in the direction of greater and greater disorder unto complete destruction and chaos and randomness. And this is basically the principle of corruption. God is the ultimate life source of all things. He is the creator. As the creator, he holds the secret of life of everlasting life. And that secret is in the being of who God is. Now, I'm not here to explain this at this point, but to emphasize that when we choose to be independent from the ultimate everlasting life source of all creation and from which all creation came forth and is sustained, then this law of second, 
thermodynamics. This law, the second law of thermodynamics, becomes a reality, for we have chosen to be left on our own, independent from that which is constructive onto greater meaning and purpose and life and contains the very source thereof, which is held in a perfection of ultimate love that has such integrity and purity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary to love. And I just briefly define love here, is that it is a free choice in God that always chooses the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of fulfillment. Therefore, it is super intelligent in its choice, but that is issuing out of a quality that is this love, that is there because of this innate nature that is a consuming fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to it. This is the integrity of God's love or what is known as the defensive aspect of God's love or of his holiness. And I briefly mention this for those that are new. As I often share about this in my messages, this is the foundation that allows God to contain unlimited life and power without being corrupted by it or that life and power being corrupted. Rather, the life and the power is channeled in a fully constructive way without construction, destructiveness into greater and greater enlargements of fulfillment and creativity. It is also the foundation from which God expresses the ultimate quality of his being out of this, as it were, ultimate negative, which can be a negative symbol, which symbolizes something being cut off that is not in conformity to what is fully without corruption and onto life, and also represents a foundation from which can spring forth creativity without corruption in the positive symbol, which is like the symbol of the cross. And so in the being of God, there has always been the quality that can, without violating the integrity of his love, have such love that he can himself become a perfect atoning sacrifice to suffer and humble himself more than the mere creature like you. In order to absorb judgment upon himself so that you can choose to repent and receive his perfect atoning sacrifice. But that quality always existed before the world was created in God so that it was also a reality and an act even before the world was created. And that is why it says in the word of God about the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, before the world was created, that act already happened in reality. Because It was the very being of who God is. Now, I'm not here to get off on that. I am here to point out right here to focus on an understanding of corruption. 
It is our violation of who God is. Our choice to not recognize who God in reality is in these two ultimate aspects, which for sake of illustration are very effectively illustrated in the negative and positive symbol. The positive symbol also being a picture of the cross. And for those that are new, I should also mention that the Hebrew language which the Old Testament is written in has one symbol that is exactly the symbol of the cross that was used in their writing from 1500 BC and back and by other and was the source of all the other languages in that whole area and it that particular letter which is the symbol of cross also means sign and symbol isn't that amazing now what i want to share here is what God is wanting to say to his people and to you as an individual to enter in to a relationship with God where these things that are so corrupting and destructive, where we learn the secret of conquering corruption, deception in our lives, individually and corporately, as the body of Christ, and also as nations, because it is the very secret of ultimate economy. And this is not something that I can, I would love to share on the secret of ultimate economy, because it is in the very mystery of the unity of who God is in his triunity. There is only one God. We don't believe in three gods. And I briefly share for those that are new a little bit about this right now. That is that one of the names of God is Elohim, which is the understanding of Almighty in plurality. When God created man, he said, let us make man in our image. So he was speaking in a plurality, and yet it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Yes, there is only one God. But God, if he is truly God, can must govern the very ultimate aspects of existence, which are this, that which is beyond time and space, the creation, which is the time and space realm, and filling all space. God must be in personage beyond time and space, conscious intellect, beyond time and space to govern beyond time and space. And as such, he is known as the Father, God the Father. Father means source. Father also means one that sees the end from the beginning because he transcends time and space. The understanding of a father is one that has experience through time and therefore has wisdom to make right choices. But he's also the originator. For out of the Father comes a son, what is a son? A son is the full expression of the Father into the time and space realm. And thus God also is in personage in the time and space realm or in his creation, which is the expression of his love in creating. And so the word son means expression and, it, and the son is the full expression of God the Father into the time and space realm in the very essence of who God is in his being. 
this perfection of love that I described briefly as an ultimate negative and positive for illustration. Jesus Christ is called the full expression of the Father in Hebrews 1.3. He himself said, whoever has seen me or perceived me has perceived the Father. He also said that whoever has been taught and learned of the Father comes to the Son. Because whoever has perceived who God is and has entered into that perception of who God as the Father is, is going to also receive the expression of who God is, which is the Son. And that expression of God is first in his holiness, that is the defensive aspect of his love, which is this foundation. And secondly, in his mercy, which is the expression of God's being, to show ultimate mercy by becoming a, by taking judgment upon himself, by tasting death, for every being that is indirectly tempted through the creation realm so that they can have the opportunity to repent and be reconciled to God. Now that I've laid a foundation here, I want to go on to minister more to the body of Christ, and I'm sure to those that are new they will understand more clearly. So we have God in three ultimate dimensions in government, as the Father beyond time and space, as the Son in time and space and government, and as the Holy Spirit filling all space, for his presence is attached in omnipresence, in omnipotence, and in omniscience to every particle of existence, so that God can be in all places at the same time and in personage in all places at the same time to do any creative act, including reversing the molecular structure to bring back every living being from the dead. I won't go into a lot more I could share on that in, in a scientific aspect, which you can find through men that are top mathematicians like uh, Kipler, I believe his last name is. Forgetting it now, it'll be in my book. Anyhow, let's go on. Um... What I want to share here now is this, that in this passage that I just described in 2 Chronicles 13, I want to give you a little understanding of the context of this particular passage. Judah, the kingdom that fought against northern Israel, because northern Israel had become apostate. But what initiated this division in the first place was that in Judah, the new king that came to power wanted to tax all the northern tribes. And the northern tribes said, be easy, be easy on us. Don't be like your father that was very, you know, very dictatorial and very oppressive. Uh, could you give us a response as to how you're going to rule us? Are you going to be easy on us? Are you going to be, you know, gentle with us? Yeah, you can tax us, but don't oppress us. And so the king of Judah, Rehoboam, <clears throat> said, I will be way more severe than my father. In fact, my little finger will be more oppressive than my father. So you can understand why the northern tribes rebelled and did not want to be taxed by the tribe, 
by the king ruling in Jerusalem with the tribe of Judah mainly surrounding him. So this brings an interesting context to this battle that happened here. It seems like the northern tribes had some real justification to separate themselves and cause this division. But here's what I want to point out about this. That even when the Lord allows oppressive leadership in a godly nation, we are not to rebel with an unthankfulness against who God is and his holiness that has allowed it. Rather, we are to search our hearts as to why God would allow such a thing and repent of why this was allowed to happen to us instead of reacting to the outward circumstances that we perceive are absolutely so unjust. Because even rebellion in that way leads to a self-deluding, idolatrous perception of God that violates the integrity of God's love in allowance of compromise and sin. Now let me explain this. By going back to Exodus chapter 32, where the children of Israel also made golden caps when Moses refused to come down from the mountain. So I'm going to go there right now. Back to Exodus 32. And I want to read something in regards to this. First of all, I'm going to point out some things about Exodus chapter 32. So I'm turning back to Exodus 32 now. And what I find amazing is how quickly they fell away from God, especially when it says in Exodus 24, before all of this happened, this is what they say. Moses makes a covenant with them, and he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and be obedient. <clears throat> and Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. They said that they would obey the Lord. And they also, earlier in Exodus 20, had already received commandments to not have any graven images before them. And after receiving those commandments, the Ten Commandments, all the people, it says in verse 18 of Exodus 20, saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they removed and stood far off. And they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. And Moses said unto the people, Fear not, for God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. And the people stood far off, and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. 
and he goes up into the mount again, and then we have the record later on of what we just read in Exodus 32, of this apostasy that happened. How is it possible that when they heard a piercing trumpet that was obviously God himself, that was so powerful and so real that they couldn't stand being near it, they still come to a place where they form their own idolatrous image of God in the form of this molten calf. They say, they can't understand why Moses is up there and nothing is happening and now it's 40 days and nothing's happened. He's still up there. There's just all the noise, the thunderings, the trumpet, it's all ceased and and here they are, and they're thinking, well, we got to do something. I mean, we can't just sit here for 40 days. There's nothing happening. You know, is Moses ever going to come down? Maybe God took him to heaven, and he's never coming down. So if he's never coming down, we better figure out what to do. Uh, yeah. They totally forgot the covenant they made you would think that they would realize he would eventually come down, that God is not someone that would fail to have integrity towards him. Nevertheless, that's what happened. And when God, and so likewise in our lives, when God withdraws the evidence that he is with his people, they can choose to form their own independence from God. And they choose to justify this with their own idolatrous image of God. This is a God that allows for immorality and nakedness. It is evident that they did not have the fear of God, which is a choice to recognize God for who God really is, not just a choice that's intellectual assent, a deep turning in the heart that involves Awakening also the conscience. Now, God makes an interesting statement in Exodus 32 in regards to the condition that brought about this apostasy. He says in verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. That was what God was abhorrent of that he saw in them, that they were stiff-necked. So I looked up the Hebrew word for stiff-necked. And this is what I discovered about this word. And I looked it up not only in the modern Hebrew letters, but in the ancient Hebrew script writings that go back in symbolic letters from 1500 B.C. and back. So first of all, in the modern, it defines this word stiff neck to be dense or tough or severe. It gives different examples of it. But where you see the real meaning is in the symbolic letters. And the first letter is the letter which is written with a circle and a horizontal line going through it, representing a sunset. 
And this particular letter basically means condensed circle and time. Of course, there's time where the sun goes up, the sun goes down, the sun is circling, you're circling around something. It's the understanding of a repeating process, a circling process. Now the other symbol is the symbol of where our modern letter W comes from. It is kind of written like a W, even back in the symbolic language, but it's more like uh, just uh, a fork with three pitches and that's all, there's no handle. There's the metal pitch and the two on the other side, or you might, so that's how it was written. Now this particular symbol, this is what the meaning of it is. It's a picture of two front teeth. It has the understanding of pressing, of something that presses, that's sharp. It also is used for the word two, but it has the understanding. So here's what you have. This symbolic letter. This is the understanding of the word stiff neck. I would describe it this way. It is where we are allowing in our lives our focus to circle around self. Like the electrons that circle around the nucleus of an atom and move at high speeds to form a hard shell. There's a strong circling around self that does not want to be broken from self. Which is represented in the next letter, which is the two teeth that represent pressure or clenching tight. So it's a clenching tight of the heart around self. That is the understanding of stiff neck. And this is in independence from God. It is a dependence upon ourselves. The Lord said that the children of Israel had corrupted themselves. And in this state of being, we see a picture of that corruption, illustrated in the hard shell that forms around an atom. Now remember that I said that God in his being is represented in this ultimate negative and positive. What does it take to break the shell of that is around the nucleus of an atom in these electrons, spinning at high speeds? It is a negative and positive that is first the negative and then the positive. First, the recognition of God in his holiness, out of which there is the recognition of God in the greatness of his mercy, wherein we perceive the greatness of his love to us personally, that he would be the very giver of our life and the very creator of our life, and we are filled with thankfulness for that, but beyond that, that he would have mercy upon us in our choices of rebellions and and provide a way of forgiveness, that within his being there was the power to forgive because of a quality that could be atoning, propitiatory, if I'm pronouncing it right, atoning, 
to absorb judgment in order to provide and assure mercy and forgiveness to the repentant. So what I want to share is something now that it wasn't just by coincidence that I happened to be writing in my book. It's in rough form, so it's not going to be that perfect. That happens to be what I was writing in my book at the same time. Do you think this is all coincidence that all these chapters are coming together with this theme and that this message is coming out at this time? It is not. And so I want to just briefly read this. And here's what I will read. It is God's integrity of love and judgment against rebellious choices of independence as evident in the suffering observed around us and its effective suffering in one's personal life that can cause offense or independent denial in the heart against God and thus who God really is. And it's very obvious that all of us experience in one way or another circumstances in our lives that bring suffering. And as believers, if we've already known God in our lives, we can assume that because we've experienced God in such a wonderful way with us like Israel did in their deliverance from the Egyptians, that therefore God will always be that way with us. And so when we experience tragedy in our lives, we misinterpret this as that God is not good towards us. And we rebel against the consequences that we are experiencing, forgetting that God, in anything he allows, is doing it on to ultimate good. Now, in this, I will continue to read. And so I read... Also here, something else. Now remember, I've said that the fear of God is a choice that is a choice from the heart, a deep turning on the heart that recognizes who God in reality is, which is this holiness of God out of which springs the mercy of God or the truth of God out of which springs the grace of God, which is the equivalent uh, description in the New Testament saying the same thing because the word mercy in Hebrew has the understanding also of grace. Now, here's what I read here, or wrote here. There can be a denial of the severity and reality of this absolute purity of who God, in the integrity of his love, to execute severe judgment is, in order to uphold goodness without corruption. God upholds goodness without corruption by the severity of his judgment that issues out of the integrity of his love or the holiness of his being. Offense towards God in the heart loses sight of the goodness being upheld by God's integrity of love and judgment, which paints an image like unto our distorted, fallen self-image. This is an image of us being in control by focus of performance, out of self-trust, that loses sight of the spontaneous heart relationship which admits liberty and goodness in place of mere robotic-like performance. Thus, an idolatrous image of God is also formed of God as highly moral, dictatorial, and demanding of us. God is viewed as holy, but not so holy that we cannot meet the requirement of performance within ourselves. 
that would require the deep turning of the heart. in quest of God's goodness and mercy so that we find it. Remember what I said here. I said, God is holy still. He's viewed as holy, but not holy, so holy that we cannot meet the performance of requirement within ourselves. We don't see the need for a deep turning in our heart in quest of relationship with God and his goodness and his mercy. Because we've not perceived his goodness, we've taken offense at the consequences. Suddenly God's not with us, just like Moses was disappeared and Israel couldn't understand why would God suddenly not be with them. The same happened to the northern tribe of Israel. Why in the world would the king of Judah Rehoboam becomes so oppressive, or was it, I forget, if I have the wrong name of the king, forgive me, I believe it was. He was oppressive, and they couldn't understand why God would allow them to be treated with disrespect and oppression after all they'd already suffered. But they didn't realize, they didn't have faith that God was ultimately good. You see, the genuine fear of God is a choice to recognize God as ultimately trustworthy, which is only possible in recognizing the goodness that is behind his holiness that issues forth in the power to provide forgiveness. And that means that we recognize in the greatest contradictions when it seems that God is against us and not even there, that he is doing a creative work. There is a verse in Peter speaking to the Christians going through great trial that says this, them that suffer, they are to keep, commit the keeping of their soul unto a faithful creator it who knows to do good. We need to recognize that God is creative and that in every contradiction, we should still trust him, that he is ultimately good and has a purpose that is creative through every trial. God is saying to the body of Christ that we are living in a time of great deception. Deception that would distort the image of God. And particularly this deception will increase as the judgments of God fall upon the earth and our securities and the comforts of this life are shaken. And we'll ask ourselves, why would God allow this? Why? Well, maybe... Maybe my view of God has been wrong. For it doesn't make sense that God would allow this. And we begin to develop our own understanding in independent ways and form our own idolatrous image of God. It goes either way. It either goes in the form of, of a God that is demanding and where we set up our own performance of rules to meet his demands or it goes in the form of a God 
that is all accepting of every belief system, but where there is no integrity of love in the being of God because he is receiving that which is contrary to his love. In I, in, and accepting idols, states of self-worship, philosophies of self-worship that do not acknowledge the creator as their life source. And here we are, And I'm just sharing with you some of the passages that I received this week. There's also another passage that goes along the same theme of this week, and that is in Hosea 12. I'm just going to go to Hosea 12. We're going to look at that. Hosea chapter 12. In Hosea chapter 12, we have God describing the apostasy of the northern kingdom of Israel, particularly represented in the tribe of Ephraim. And also at this time, Judah is going into apostasy as well. And God points out something very interesting in this passage, which is the secret to overcoming our own ways and entering into a place of purity in our lives. And I want to encourage you at this point in this regards I've described God in his holiness. But I want to emphasize that it is out of us entering into holiness that the next thing we enter into out of that holiness is wholeness in our lives. For out of holiness in the being of God issues the essence of wholeness, spelled W-H-O-L-E-N-E-S-S. Because wholeness is that quality that has no corruption in it. When you're holy, you've come out of corruption. You've come into a place of relationship with God where you are in oneness with God in a state of selfless trust and obedience. It says in the word of God that faith works by love. And there is this reciprocating relationship where the more we perceive the mercy of God that issues out of his holiness towards us personally, which, which also means we perceive the love of God towards us personally, the more we respond in our soul in a selfless state like an open hand of surrender and trust, totally trusting in who God is, without deviating from the recognition of who God in reality is in his being of holiness and 
grace or truth and grace. And so we are fully persuaded through every circumstance that we can trust God that in the end there will be resurrection. When Christ was on the cross, God, the very expression of God, took our judgment upon him. And he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did that mean that he doubted who the Father was? How could that be so when he is God? No, he did not. That cry of, Why hast thou forsaken me? was the cry of release from the burden of the pressure of absorbing and receiving upon himself the judgment that we deserve to receive. But his trust was always in the Father, for he said into thy hands, I commit my spirit or commend my spirit. His soul was in a state of selfless trust like an open hand, which represents a state of selflessness. Remember, whatever you trust is where you are putting your merit, your worth, and your glory. So if you're a trusting in yourself, you're in a deceived state of self-worship. But the Son was trusting in the Father through it all. And because that link could never be broken of his oneness with the Father, in trust, Yes, the presence and all of those things. There was a cutting off, but not in trust. Not in reciprocation of who the Father was and the glory of its being to him. And so it says in Romans 1, is it 4? Yeah, 1, 4. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. The spirit, the soul of Jesus Christ was as an estate a total purity of trust in the Father. He never allowed corruption to enter his being in distrust. He was totally pure in his relationship with the Father, not grasping for his own ways in bitter rebellion, taking his fist against God when he said, why hast thou forsaken me? But there's always the cry of why, because it goes beyond the comprehension of the natural understanding as to why God would allow things to those especially of his people that have seen him with them in so many ways in the past. And so Christ rose from the dead by the spirit of holiness. And it is when we learn to trust God through the trials, no matter how great the contradiction is, that we will also experience out of the greatest contradictions breakthrough into the greatest resurrections of transformation and conformity to the way God has called us to be as his sons and daughters in conformity to his image. And in Hosea 12, what happened? God describes the apostasy in verse 1 of Ephraim. He feeds on wind. He follows after the east wind. He's increased with lies and desolation. They make a covenant with the Assyrians and the Egyptians instead of trusting in the Lord. So the Lord has a controversy also with Judah and will punish Jacob 
According to his ways, according to his doings, will he recompense him. And then he says this about Jacob. He took his brother by the heel on the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us, even the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial. In other words, Jacob's memorial is the Lord. Therefore turn thou to thy God, keep mercy and judgment, and wait on thy God continually. God is giving the secret here of overcoming the deception and the corruption in our being. Now remember, Jacob means deceiver, but his name was changed to Israel, meaning he shall be a prince of God. We start out with the deception of our own ways. But if we prevail to seek God, even through the deception of our own ways, where we suffer the consequences of that in trials, then we will also experience the breakthrough that Jacob experienced. Jacob faced the consequences of his deception when he fled from Laban and he had to face his brother Esau who vowed to kill him. And he fled from Laban and he wrestled with God that night and actually God appeared to him in a theophany. Jesus Christ in the flesh before he came to this world and wrestled with them, and Jacob asked the name of this angel or special messenger, angelic being. And he says, I cannot give you my name because it's wonderful. Who do you think that is? Jacob himself said that when he wrestled that night with his being, that he saw God face to face. And it was in his brother's face, Esau, that somehow in wrestling with his angel, he saw God face to face. And what this speaks of is God's requirement out of his holiness of judgment. And Esau had good reason to have vengeance upon Jacob for deceiving him and robbing him of his birthway. And so now he faces the consequences of God's holiness and judgment in seeing the face of his brother Esau. But there's mercy. But there's mercy. He brings many gifts. He figures his wife and children are going to be killed. But he comes in humility, in repentance, and pleads for mercy. And that face of holiness springs forth with mercy. And Esau embraces his brother. Likewise, in the trials that we have in our lives, if we cry out and trust in the mercy of God, instead of rebelling in the trial, believe for his power to come through and wait on him, he will cleanse us and bring us into a place where the deceptions in our lives are unraveled and we walk in a relationship of pure trust of holiness with God. goes on in this passage, and there's too much for me to speak on, or I'd be speaking for many hours. 
But in this passage, God goes on and he explains that he is going to use the same process that he used with Jacob to Israel as a nation. He describes in this chapter that Israel deceived itself for their attainment of wealth and comfort to believe they were acceptable before God because they were getting blessed materially. But God will reveal to them by the prophets the truth and reveal to them that the true comfort and attainment is only in the Redeemer. It's not in the comfort of their material wealth. And just like God delivered Israel from Egypt, into the dwelling place of God where they dwelt in tabernacles in the wilderness with the presence of God, so he will do in the last days to the nation of Israel and all those nations that turn back to him and enter into the very secret of economy, of ultimate economy, which is the mystery of the unity in the triunity of God, the one true God, of the Son with the Father, and the Father with the Son, and them with the Holy Spirit, the one true God, the Almighty's one Elohim. The mystery is described. For example, I didn't plan to go here, but I feel to go to Colossians and just point this mystery out of relationship with God that God is seeking. I believe it's probably going to be, and I'm guessing a bit here, but I believe it's in Colossians. Yes, it's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. I will begin to read this. It says, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. This is the conflict that Paul the Apostle has. Let me read it now that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love unto the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So our hearts are knit together in love unto a richness that comes out of the full assurance of understanding, which is knowing the mystery of God, the Father, and of Christ. The mystery of the relationship between Christ and the Father is the same relationship that God wants us to have with Christ and with one another. He prayed about it in John 17. In this is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and it is wisdom and knowledge that channels power in a way that it does not have corruption and lead to destruction, but onto greater and greater realms of unity and fulfillment. The Son loved the Father so much that he said to the Father, I'm so filled with thankfulness when I behold the holiness of your being that is so glorious and bright light against any destructibility. And that in this holiness I see in you such goodness, such love, that Father, I just want to express thankfulness and love back to you 
So I want to condescend and go into creation and suffer more than the mere creature man and humble myself more than the mere creature man so that I may absorb their sins upon me so that they can be reconciled to you, Father, and become a corporate bride that I can bring to you as a love offering in my thankfulness unto you, Father. And the Father says to the Son, Son, I love you so much. And I see such glory in you. And I see how your heart loves me. That, Son, I will gladly suffer your going. And the judgment that you will take upon yourself so that you can inherit a bride and be enlarged in love in that bride in fellowship with me. This comes out of the genuine fear of God. It is a reciprocative choice. And how does it work? The word of God says in Galatians that faith works by love. The faith increases the more we gaze upon who God is in his grace that comes out of its holiness. And in that there is wholeness. And it is the wholeness that brings forth the beauty. For King David said, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life, and to inquire in his temple. You see, God is ultimate reality. And reality is that quality, if you look it up in the dictionary, that can never be destroyed, that is immutable, that is unchangeable. And the only quality that can be that way is that which contains no corruption. And the only quality that can contain no corruption is the being of God in holiness that issues forth in grace. As the lamb slain before the world was created for you, And that is the process that God is working in you as an individual and in the body of Christ and in nations. For it says in the word of God that he has foreknown the boundaries of the nations and allowed them to be cornered with those boundaries in such pressure that it will cause them to turn to God and to seek him and to find him. And there are those nations that will rebel out of the pressure and become goat nations in rebellion against God and serve the devil and be ultimately judged and destroyed. And there are those nations that will be having multitudes converted within them so that, as it were, there is a nation of light within the nation of darkness. And so it says in Revelations 21 that there will be nations that will enter into the new Jerusalem, that city that is 1,500 miles square by height and depth that will come down from heaven onto the earth when heaven comes down and conquers earth. This is the secret of ultimate economy. I could go on sharing for a long time. I've already been sharing 
for about an hour and 15 minutes. But I can tell you that all the other passages I received this week basically have the same theme in this passage that I'm talking about in Hosea 12. God describes in this chapter that Jacob prevailed to attain natural fulfillment. But just as Jacob fled from bondage, accompanied with this, his attainment, so God will cause it to happen to them as a nation, just like it happened through the prophet Moses to lead them out of, bo- out of the bondage of Egypt. They will experience the full consequences of the rebellion against God, but God will use it to bring them to full marriage to him. They will become his bride. In Isaiah 4, I have this week a description of this bride in the last days. I can't go into it. I'd love to go into it. There's just no time. It'd be another message. The word believe, I had that word looked up this week too, the Old Testament word for the word believe. It's, I had the passage where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. This is basically the same word as the word faith. In the New Testament, it means moral persuasion. In who God is. So that it doesn't matter what the circumstance is. Your trust is in him because you're persuaded in who he is. Out of the fear of God from the heart. But in the Old Testament, it is the word amen. Which is the word from which we get the word amen. And it basically means the same thing. It is a persuasion in who God is and the truth of who he is and his being to us. Look it up in the New Testament vines. I don't have time now to share it in detail. One of the root words out of that word is the word truth. It has the understanding. Now this word truth, the symbol language is an ox head which speaks of authority, and then water, which speaks of evenness, firmness, and life. Uh, A sprout, which speaks of life and continuance, and the symbol of the cross. That's what the word truth means. The root word is just the water symbol and the sprout. Christ talked about faith being like a mustard seed that had such life in it that it didn't matter what... I mean, a mustard seed will sprout in the desert. It is a moral persuasion onto life that abides in the life source in the most adverse circumstances so that it will sprout forth from insignificance. See, it comes out of great humility. The fear of God causes humility. So that our life is totally dead and hid with Christ and God. So that we don't see anything or desire anything but God. We love the place of humility and hiding our life. And out of that springs a great tree of life. In our lives as an individual and in the body of Christ that enters into this reciprocating relationship where faith works by love. That perception of who God is that casts out all fear. For perfect love casts out fear because fear has uptightness because it is conscious of loss of self-loss. But when you see God for who he is, you are no longer conscious of self-loss. You're only conscious of the greatness of his love and that you can trust him through every trial and contradiction. 
I better forbear continuing to speak, as this message is getting very long. It is now over an hour and 20 minutes. Thank you for listening to this message. God bless you all.